The suffering of the black community can no longer fall on deaf ears. The history of shame and silence that haunts America must be excavated with careful listening, a bold honesty, and intentional long-term action so that we can experience healing and wholeness. It is our responsibility to think carefully how fear and greed have made a world where some prosper and others suffer. Today is June 29th, 2020, and the world is still reeling from the global pandemic of COVID, and in America, the violent murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd have set into motion protests across America. At this critical moment, and I am talking here to my white friends, we need radical humility. Humility is not sentimentality, but a way of being in the world. It says, everyone is my teacher. Humility seeks first to understand the experience of others, especially those whose voice has been historically devalued. The art of humility with the necessary skills of quietness and listening is the holy work that we must attend to. For those of us that want to help but don't know how, I am convinced that the starting point is humility. It's a paradox, I know, but the way forward is a kind of unlearning. For this reason, this month's Words at First Light Dispatch, I wanted to listen deeply to someone else's perspective. Dominique Christina is someone whose life and work has challenged, expanded, and inspired me. And I know that I'm not alone here. Dominique is a friend, but also an award-winning poet, author, educator, and activist. I first met Dominique at the Paramount Theater in 2017, when Denver hosted the National Poetry Slam Contest, where she performed her stunning poem, Mothers of Murdered Sons. Dominique holds five National Poetry Slam titles in four years, including the 2014 and 2012 Woman of the World Slam Champion and the 2011 National Poetry Slam Champion. Dominique has authored three poetry collections, The Bones, The Breaking, and The Balm, A Color Girl's Hymnal, They Are All Me, and Anarcha Speaks, A History and Poems. She also authored a collection of essays with poems that begin each chapter. This is woman's work. Dominique earned a double master's degree in education and English literature, and she has over 10 years of experience as a licensed educator. She writes and acts in the HBO series High Maintenance. Vox said about the series, This series has always understood and celebrated New York's singular weirdness and the often surprising and beautiful communities that spring up therein. But Dominique cannot be contained on the page of a personal bio. She is fierce, vulnerable, uncompromising, honest, endlessly compassionate, and wise. Thank you, Dominique, for agreeing to talk with me this afternoon. Thank you so much for being with me of course. this morning. You're such a gift um, to all who know you and to have your wisdom and your words and to share your story is a gift to me. So thank you. Thank you. And um, my first question for you is, I wondered if we could start today by you painting for us a picture, painting for us a picture of your childhood. Okay. What were some of your earliest memories and impressions of American life? 
Um, hmm, that's a really interesting question. I grew up in a really uh, impossibly impressive family who had done remarkable things that history has uh, sort of celebrated them for. I, I come from uh, people who defied odds and did things that were thought to be uh, almost impossible. My grandparents got their college degrees and graduate degrees during the Depression. My grandmother was Native American. My grandfather was white passing, but African American, uh, insisting constantly on his blackness. Um, my Aunt Carlotta desegregated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, under the loose protection of paratroopers. She was brutalized every day for a year just so she could have textbooks without missing pages. She was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for that. I, I come from authors and activists and scholars and just fiercely proud, brilliant people. And I knew it. I knew it. Uh, I, I don't have a memory in the absence of that knowledge. I knew my mother was the most beautiful, most brilliant woman that I'd ever seen and that I probably would ever see. I knew my grandmother was the most beautiful, brilliant, and ferocious woman that I had ever known. I knew my grandfather was impossibly human, though his time on this planet was unkind to him. Um, somehow, he remained human. So I, I lived in awe of these folks, and I understood that I also had a responsibility to be at least as amazing as they were. I don't remember my family talking a lot in any direct line about uh, things that they suffered at the hands of white supremacy. I don't remember that. But I do remember hearing the stories of what happened to them. I remember hearing about the house being bombed. I remember hearing about the lynchings. I remember about how it shifted my grandfather's neuropathy to live under that. Um, I understood the weight of history. I didn't yet know what participant I was supposed to be, but I knew I was supposed to be extraordinary. I knew that for whatever reason, some reason that felt far away from me, um, people in power decided that people of color were not valuable. And it was strange to me because I was surrounded by people of color who were performing miracles every day, who were doing exceptional, extraordinary things. So I just didn't get it. And I, I, it felt really far away from me, but I also was being privately schooled in really intensely homogenous environments and quickly began to understand that whatever this is, whatever this sickness is, it's not gone. It's mine now. I'm unwelcome in this environment. Folks resent me because of my intelligence. I guess I'm not supposed to have it. Um, I didn't know what to do with any of that. So I guess I, the, my answer is I, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance for me as a little girl, navigating the history of this place, pairing it with the supernatural folks that I came from and in my community and trying to make sense of it all while also still trying to carve out a place for myself and trying to do so without fear or apology. It was dizzying. That's what I would say. Would you read first your poem, Oh America, out of They Are All Me? Sure. 
Okay, let's see here. Hmm. Oh, America, I went out looking for what you promised and found a toothless grin, an empty pot, boneyard lullabies, sweetless shores, witches burned to cinder, little black girls bombed in churches. They are all me. Each charred bone, each torn dress is the story of my birth. I'm a wandering ghost here, this mudstruck witch pledging allegiance to the pitchfork, stupidly sturdy anyhow. My Easter dress, my winding cloth. You tried to kill me, made my death tradition, but I'm stubborn in this skin. It doesn't matter what weapons you point, I roll the stone away, outlast death, abandon it in the cause of my name, my holy, my righteous name. What will you do, America? What can you do with this cliff-hanging colored girl who pioneered her own dumb body despite the ambulance ride you turned things into? See how incurably permanent I am? See how these skeletons tumble out of my mouth, the grisly burst of unnamed corpses that hang above my head, a halo of deliberate memory. Oh, America, you put a war in my veins, hoped I'd die from the poison or be disappeared by debris, but I grew past the bile and carried too many grave jumpers in my photo album to succumb to your kind of death ritual. 1619 was this morning. I can feel the first cargo of trembling Africans fighting to keep their names in a place too indulgent in blood sport. They are all me. Each one is me. I have inherited a swarm of bees for blood. What will you do, America? What cemetery could you possibly build for a girl so full memory mm. thank you thank You're you welcome. i wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what high school was like for you mm -hmm. i imagine you writing directing and then leading in the wildly successful high school play <laughs> <laughs> that's not true um i i was a volleyball player i um i hit six feet when i was 11 years old and uh, all of a sudden there were a lot of <laughs> enthusiastic coaches clamoring for, for my time. Um, I was a volleyball player and that was my identity. Uh, by the time I got to high school, I was pretty war whipped. I, uh, already had a lot of blood in my eye, but I was also really practicing insisting on myself and, um, just being, immovable in spaces that were less than kind or less than friendly or less than welcoming. I, I practiced being immovable in every room, about keeping my back straight in every room. I wasn't even really seeking to have some huge friend group at that point. I was seeking to find my tribe and, and my, my kindred and and understood, I think, even then that, that what I was really talking about was folks who were willing to reckon with my personhood, all of it. 
all of it, and that I would pay it forward and pay it back. Um, but you know, when you're 14 and 15 and 16, uh, there are other folks in your peer group who have less complicated lives or less political things to worry about. Uh, so that was isolating. That, that kept me alone sometimes. Athletics created community for me because America loves a good athlete. Um, but I don't think anyone was really seeing me fully or clearly. I think I was just a volleyball player. And that's what it was for me. That's what it was for me. Again, intensely homogenous environment, Catholic school, one of very, very few people of color in the space. And I was treated far better than the others because again, I was an athlete. And so I was sort of given a pass on certain things. I don't know. I remember high school to be painful and isolating. That's what I remember. Yeah. Was it then in your college years where you had that hunch that poetry and people, words making worlds would be your life work? Not until my senior year. I, um, you know, again, volleyball was an identity. It was paying for college. I was an All-American, a Division One school. We were going to the Final Four. We were doing well. I was uh, playing for a university with a prestigious program. The, the former head coach, Terry Laskevich, was the uh, United States women's volleyball coach uh, for the Olympics. My head coach, John Dunning, would always assist, you know, in Olympic years. My senior year, or heading into my senior year of undergrad, my, under, my coach insisted that I try out for the Olympic team because that was, the Olympics were happening in Atlanta in 96, and I didn't want to do it. Uh, I was pretty burned out at that point, but he didn't give me a choice. That created a lot of resentment for me. That might sound weird to people who think that, like, you know, wanting to go to the Olympics should sort of just be a definitive thing. But it did. It created a lot of resentment for me because I didn't have any authorship. So I, I did try out uh, for the team and then inexplicably made the team. And, and then I had to mean it and found myself at the Olympic Training Center with girls I had never played with before. And... I'm training and my family's proud. And so now I have to lean into this experience. And long story short, I opening ceremony, a girl from Nebraska who shall remain nameless. <laughs> um, we collided in the air going for the same set. Cause the thing about the Olympics is the same thing about the all-star games. You know, everyone in there is good, but they've never played together before. So there's no symmetry. So we collide in midair. I'm falling parallel to the ground. I put my hands down to break my fall and shattered my navicular bone, which is like a, it's a football injury. It's like wrist to thumb. But I'd never had an injury before, and I have a complicated relationship with pain, so I kept playing and kept shattering that bone. Uh, and by the time it was all said and done and I was told that, you know, I had done some irreparable harm to myself and needed to start thinking about a new identity that was pretty jarring for me. But for the first time, 
since I had gotten to college, I had the opportunity to pick my own classes that didn't have anything to do with like when practice began or when it ended or when the weight room was closed. It was just about something that I, I wanted to take, right? And there was this professor on campus that used to walk around in tie-dye shirts and uncombed hair with Birkenstocks, and he was always cussing people out <laughs> in the coffee shop line. And I was like, he's delightful. I just want to take whatever he's teaching. And what he was teaching was creative writing. And I took his class and it changed everything. It changed the trajectory of my life because he didn't let me lie. He didn't let me pantomime. He didn't let me pretend. He didn't let me feign okayness. He only wanted radical honesty and no one had ever insisted on that from me before. Everyone else had been seemingly okay with the holograms and so I found myself writing and telling the truth about stuff I thought I would die with. And before I knew it, it was all I wanted to do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What influence for good or bad and indifferent has religion and Christianity had on your imagination and poetic sensibilities? That's a really great question. I, um, my, you know, my grandparents, my family of origin were quietly Methodist. I was not browbeaten in any way with belief or belief systems. Um, I obviously inherited a God concept. But I, there was a lot of room in terms of how I engaged it from my family of origin. I was, however, going to Catholic school, K through 12, and, and was going to Mass every day. And I wasn't Catholic. Uh, so it was just one more thing that sort of made me feel like an outsider, but I paid a lot of attention to ritual Catholic, you know, the Catholic church is really, they're really big on ritual. Um, I paid a lot of attention to it. Uh, I found it fascinating and I loved the confession booth. It sounds crazy, but I would sneak in all the time and just talk and I needed it. I, I need it. Oh, there's this curve. There's this carved out curated space in which I can go in here and say all the things <laughs> and nothing will happen to me. Let's go. Like, <laughs> this sounds like a really good time. So I was really like a zealot about it. Um, I'm sure that that informs my, my poetic sensibilities because I feel like so much about how I write and what I write feels like still Dominique, young Dominique walking into the confessional booth. I'm still confessing. Um, so yeah, it, it informed things. And then there were just things that my brain attached itself to. I lamented Jesus's experience on the planet. I felt like I could relate to it. You know, like no one wants to see how big you are. They resent it. No one appreciates these miracles you're performing. You're not supposed to be able to do that. You've got to be punished for that. Like, there was some part of my personhood that really attached itself to that. Um, I had a lot of empathy. I had a lot of sorrow for Jesus. I remember the Stations of the Cross, this ritual we would do, and walking the Stations of the Cross, each station, of course, is this critical juncture right? Jesus's way to being crucified, things that he navigated on his way to his final moment. And I really attached myself to all of that. I see those things peeking out in the writing, even now. 
these moments where I want, I'm trying to invite people in here. Look at this critical juncture in which this person had to do something seismic, though it hurt. Because their people needed them to, or because their community needed them to, or their family needed them to, or, or because the planet needed them to be able to demonstrate a willingness to bleed if at the end of it all it would mean tourniquets for everybody else. Um, yeah, it informs me a lot. Sure. Oh, thank you. I've never heard you express that that way. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I was hoping you'd read This Is Before and They Are All Me. Okay, This Is Before. Do you remember them by title when I say the title? Mm-hmm. Or you, okay, okay. This is before megachurches and hyper-evangelical fooey against homosexuals and heathens and abortion, stuff like that. When you went to church for the music, not because God had gotten around to thinking about you yet, but because as far as you were concerned, prayer was a black woman in a long white robe singing hymns that fixed all your crazy. And for six minutes or so, you weren't cursed at all and didn't metabolize your grief into medicine cabinets and switchblades. No, this is before telethons with slick-haired, fast-talking preachers got syndicated and interrupted the sway of your hips on Sunday morning because you didn't watch those Bible shows or know about the folly of it all. You just love singing in the choir in the pipeline between you and whatever else was out there beyond your reach ignoring you on weekdays when you think about it now from your cynical perch. You sometimes miss what it was like to be lost to logic and swept up by the alto section that told your heart there were no mistakes on earth. Some goodly spirit was rooting for you, a far off ghost in the abstract who knew you by name, didn't hold your flimsy faith against you and leaned forward in his throne whenever black women got together on Sunday morning to sing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. What does a really good day look like for Dominique? What do you do? What what is it with, with you and your loved ones? Is there a Denver restaurant that you have to go to? What does that look like? I'm not good at self-care, and I won't pretend like I am. I, um, <laughs> a good day for me is when all my loved ones are accounted for. Um, when I manage to sing songs in my kitchen without interruption or... You know, my daughter had some brand new experience that awakened her to her womanness or, you know, her magic or, you know, when my sons have invented some new way of staying here. Like, that's a good day for me. It, it really is. I, uh, I don't, I don't seek, like, I don't know how to seek um, you know, like joy necessarily, but I, I know what it feels like when it's happening to me, but I have no expectation of it. Um, I'm mostly any good day for me is a day where there's music or where I wrote something that I care about and where all the people that I love are 
still alive. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good day. I wondered, so you're, you're traveling, you're speaking, well, before COVID, you before were traveling COVID, yeah. and speaking across the yeah. country. Yeah. Um, what is it like in your shoes? What is it like to experience racism in, across America? I mean, it's just, uh, it's just one cruelty after another. Um, it's one mind numbing event after another. And I'm, I'm very clear about what my privilege is and where my resources come from and, and that I can navigate this stuff better than others. I'm very clear about it. You know, I, 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 you know, no one wants to get into a debate with me. I'm clear about that, right? Like, you know, and so Unless like there are certain, lose, right? yeah. So there are certain things that provide a level of protection for me that don't exist for other members of my community. I'm conscious of that. The fact that there are people who pay me to speak to them in a room is a privilege. I'm not blind to that at all. Um, my grandmother was a far more accomplished wordsmith than I. No one listens to her. So I walk into rooms and think about her and, and, and think about honoring this op the opportunity that I've been given because she was not given that opportunity. Um, you know, I, I don't have the experience of walking outside and, and someone shouting racial epithets at me. I don't have the experience of, um, you know, there are one million landmines that ordinary folks walk through every day as it relates to race and the construct of that in this country that I don't navigate. The stuff that happens to me is quieter and more philosophical. Um, it's the perpetual awe at my intelligence. It's the perpetual awe at my articulation because I'm not supposed to be able to do any of this. Um, and those are the things I navigate, but I've been navigating them my whole life. So... I'm almost numb to those microaggressions now. Yeah, I'm almost numb to it. Instead, what I do is I try to put my body in front of harm that comes to others that don't have the same resources or the same privileges that I do, mm. you know? Yeah. Is that exhausting? Yeah, totally. Totally, but it's necessary. Mm. It's necessary for me anyway. I can't be content. I can't be one of those people that like, you know, has have, you know, like I have this privilege and I have these things that are offered to me and I have these opportunities and I go sit in my nice house and sort of watch from my perch while others <laughs> suffer. I can't mm -mm. do any of that. Mm. So, no, I'll be right outside, <laughs> with, you know, with everybody else catching mm. hell if that's what it takes, you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh. This feels like a good time. I The first sentence of Austin Channing Brown's Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness is white people are exhausting. And I wondered what advice you would give to us white people who genuinely in this moment want to be anti-racist, but who don't know how to help in practical ways and are probably more exhausting than helpful. That's complicated. It really is. Um, I just always feel like everyone needs to do their own work. I don't need you to help me. I need you to work on you. You know, I don't, 
I don't need charitable, philanthropic, you know, paternalistic. I don't need any of those outreaches. I don't. I'm good. I don't need that. I don't need you to come and tell me you're sorry. I don't need any of that. I need you to do a deep dive into your own experience, your own conditioning, your own family of origin, that which you've inherited, what you took from it without question. I need you to interrogate and reinterrogate for you and for the babies you made. I need you to shift consciousness within yourself and your community. That's what would make me and my community safer. I don't need you, you know, us, you know, handing me olive branches. I don't need that. I really don't. I, I, we all have to do our own work. We all inherited this same insane construct. You did and I did. We both inherited it. And we both have to take some time to interrogate what we did with that inheritance. How did we integrate it? Where does its legacy show up? It's hard because at some point, your mama was wrong, my mama was wrong, or your grandmother was wrong, your grandfather was wrong, or mine was. And that's a hard thing. I don't wanna make my mother wrong. I don't wanna make my grandmother, like, that's a really hard thing to stand in front of unflinchingly. Look at it, all of it, own it, and figure out how you're going to show up in the world in such a way where you can be the safest person possible. Not just for the people who look like you and who come from where you come from and who think like you, but for the people who don't. The ones you never had to think about before. The ones you never had to pay attention to before. The ones whose lives didn't quite ever matter as much. How can you be safe for them? How can you begin to practice reckoning with personhood as opposed to race and gender and sexual orientation and age and ability and education and like all of these things, the trappings of like identity politics that you can get really lost in fundamentally, it can all be answered really simply, you know? How do you reckon with a person's personhood and honor their humanity and their dignity, period. That's all I need white folks mm. to do because that's all I need anyone to do. That's so important. That's so important to hear. So I've been around you enough um, now to know how important your kids are to you. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder if you could describe for me the importance of your role as a mother. And not just your biological children, but I've also seen you have many other children, people mm -hmm. that need, that want to be around you, that need to hear you. I am, um, I made some folks who sprung from me and show me who I am in ways no one else on the planet can, who hold up mirrors your kids show you not just what you're good at, but what you're not good at, what you haven't fixed, what you didn't get flat what, from your own childhood or your own upbringing. Um, I'm so grateful to 
have these folks on the planet that look somewhat like me, um, who hold me accountable and who love me impossibly. Um, it's really everything. And, and the, you know, the, the template of motherhood is so specific. I'm, I'm supposed to nurture and care for and comfort and educate and protect. And my version of motherhood does not look like a lot of other women's <laughs> version of motherhood because I'm a wolf about it. I'm a wolf <laughs> about how I'm mother. I really am. It's very feral and, and, and guttural for me, you know. I am really good. I'm, I'm proficient at protecting them, far more proficient than I have ever been in my life at protecting me. I'm really good at protecting them. I'm really good at giving them all the latitude and longitude that I didn't get. Um, I'm really good at honoring who they are, even if it's something that I don't understand, because that's the piece. The relationship has to transcend mother to son or mother to daughter, and it has to become something larger. I have to just see who you are as a person on this planet and honor it and see the hallelujah in it, even if you're doing something that for me feels entirely strange and <laughs> unfamiliar, right? Motherhood is how I keep my integrity. Mm. It's how I, I stay honest with myself, you know, because the public knows all the sparkly stuff, mm -hmm. but right, your kids right. know all the moments you failed, right? Mm -hmm. So I revel in that. You know, the opportunity to grow deeper and grow better, it comes largely from them. Hmm. Yeah. Vincent Harding wrote, whenever we narrate the stories of spiritually powerful men and women who have lived among us, we step up to a beautiful calling, a humanizing gift, a truly parental vocation. Mm -hmm. For in exploring the lives of heroes and heroines, we are able to introduce our young to the specialness of their own lives and to the great possibilities for triumph and tragedy that are stored within them. I wondered whose lives and ideas have shaped you and continue to shape you. Oh my God. Um, so many. Uh, my mother, Professor Jacqueline Benton, my grandparents, Byron and Christine Johnson, um, Vincent Harding, his daughter, Rachel Harding. Um, Opalanga Pugh, storyteller who passed away years ago. Um, I'm, I've been changed and altered by just hearing the stories about folk who showed up here on the planet and they risked something so that I could stretch my own imagination, so that I could love myself better. Um, those folks are forever in the altar of my heart, you know? Um, some of those folks are folks that history has acknowledged and, and, and written about and <laughs> lionized. And then there are a lot of folks who lived and died in shadow and they did 
ferocious work, ferocious liberation work, ferocious abolitionist work, brave work. They lost a lot. They risked much, but they kept their chins out over their feet. They kept their hearts pure. They kept their hands open so that I'd have more room on the planet. And I honor those folks too. I honor the folks that figured out how to remain human when they were being brutalized. The ones who figured out how to love in spite of, more than because of. Yeah, there are a lot of people, na a nameless many, who did seismic things that made my life better. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, when I first heard Ruby Sales ask that question, where does it hurt? It opened something to me that I had never, that is not the question that my parents had ever asked me. And I wondered if you can describe for us what you feel when you hear or see another example of police brutality that we've seen recently, Ahmad, Brianna, George, and then closer to home, Elijah, where does it hurt inside of you? Uh, it hurts all over. Um, it's... Whew. It's destabilizing. And gut wrenching and mind numbing, and um, the organic response that my body has is sort of cinches my throat closed. I have to pry it open with each new incident. Um, my process of grieving when I was a little girl was to do so. Uh, in isolation, in the dark, in silence. <laughs> so I didn't interrupt anybody else's good time. And I practice now interrupting space with my grief because I know I, I get to do that. Um, it hurts all over. It makes me question things uh, existential crisis is not even doesn't even really cover it. Uh, it 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 makes me question why I elected to bring ch you know children onto a planet like this one, which feels like an unsurvivable question because I look at my children and know how purposeful and miraculous they are, but then these things happen and you have to own the fact that I can't necessarily protect you from this though these things are happening to people who are just black and nearby. So um, that feels like bottom, that, that grief is bottomless for me. Um, it hurts all over.
That's all. And then how is that hurt connected to your vocation as poet, author, actress, educator, activist? I bleed in front of people. I, sh- I, I leave a breadcrumb trail for you to follow. I invite you to feel it with me. I invite you to try on this sadness. Try on this hurt. Try on this outrage. Try on this upset. I invite you to consider for one moment that you should never be content to lose any of us. I'm not content to lose any of you. So I think that's the role. I think I'm, I'm, I'm inviting people into their empathy and to what I hope is a humanizing experience, one that collapses all the border walls that kind of whisper in our ear that we don't have to care about that because we don't live over there. We don't have to care about that because we don't belong to that community or we don't have to care about that because that's never happened to me. I'm trying to collapse those border walls so that you can see when we lose anybody, anybody, it's, it's an irrecoverable thing. The world is not as good after they go. And so if we couldn't prevent it, the very least we should be able to do is lament it and do whatever we can to prevent the next one. Yeah, that's the role. It's not convenient, it's not, <laughs> it's not particularly pretty, but it is deeply human and I'm interested in that. We're going to come back to that theme um, as we move on. I was struck by this James Baldwin quote, any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it, the loss of all that gave one an identity, the end of safety. That's right. And why is this loss of identity so scary for, for human beings? Because it's the one thing that you attach yourself to early. Um, the who am I question is, is essential and it should be asked of you a lot and you should ask it of yourself a lot. If in answering the who am I question, you default into these categories, you haven't done any soul work, you know, cause who you are is really not about the categories. It's really about the, the soul of you, the core of you. The stuff that makes your blood move, your personhood. Identity is tricky because the way that we've been conditioned to understand it is largely superficial. You are this age, you are this religion, you are, you know, belonging to this community, therefore you are this thing, which should produce this understanding. You know, it's all very prescriptive. And you attach yourself to it and you move through the world in accordance with those prescriptions. So if one day something or someone comes and blows all of that up, 
and asks you to really like unpack that. It feels like a death. It feels like falling in the dark. It is absolutely terrifying. People don't want to be scared and they don't want to be uncertain. So they don't want to do that work. They resist that work. It's easier to say, I'm a young white Republican, like, or I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a black woman Democrat, or it's easier to say those things and then sort of go stand over there with the people who have said those things. It's, it's much harder to stand out there on your own and answer the who am I question from a place of spirit. That's why. That's why. And do you think there's a way that we can teach our kids to hold more loosely to these identities so that that there can be a more fluidity and a freedom involved in as we grow instead of like holding so tightly to those those yeah, categories? Sure, sure. Listen, the for my children, one of the things that that was most useful to me in trying to curate language for them that would give them the most room, the most space, was to sort of explain to them that you are, we are, I am, a concept, a beautiful designed concept, which is where the word conception comes from. You are your parents' best idea. And you got here and constructs were forced upon you. And we know that a construct is built from without. So there's a rainforest and that's a concept. But if I clear those trees to build a nightclub, the nightclub is the construct. And in creating that construct, I had in that clearing, things had to die. Things that were organic had to die to accommodate that construct. And what you want to do is insist on a life that is amplifying the conception of you, not the construction of you. That construct, those constructs could never tell the story of who you actually are. You are a concept. You are whole and perfect and complete. And then constructs start hammering on you minimizing certain things, amplifying other things, forgetting certain things. No, you want to live a life that is about the amplification of the concept of you. That's what I try to do. That's the invitation. That's the invitation for my children. Yeah. A whole lot of things should not have to die in order for you to be a version of the story that other folks think is the most palatable. Mm, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Amen. 500 times. <laughs> <laughs> mm, it's so wonderful to sit in this moment with you, but it's also, um, we could just sit on one idea for five hours mm-hmm. together. <laughs> <laughs> so forgive me if I push forward, but I want to keep, sure. Um, that was so, so wonderful. Um, I wanted to pull into the direction of the cover of the June 26th New Yorker by Kadir Nelson. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to just describe it for us and tell us your reaction to it. Um, George Floyd is the backdrop. He's 
he's housing so many other individuals who preceded him, who inherited a brutal history and whose names we know because of how they died. Emmett Till and an enslaved man with his back broken open and sanitation workers that were protesting, holding signs that said, I am a man and Eric Garner and Freddie Gray and Sandra Bland and the beating of Rodney King and signs that uh, were prevalent in my grandfather's era where they would write, a man was lynched yesterday to try to awaken consciousness about the brutality that they were facing. And it's really the story of America as black folks know it in this, uh, it's the story of America as my community has experienced it, that um, safety is elusive and certainly not promised. And that if someone decides that day that I look suspicious, I will likely die. Um, if I am walking in an area that, where the houses are too big or, um, I just, I'm not expected to have belonging in that space, I will likely die. If not at the hands of police, then at the hands of someone who, again, has a more privileged position than I, who determines that I'm a threat, who watches me walk down a dark road in a hoodie and with Skittles in my hand and iced tea and decides that I need to be neutralized, who sees me walking down a dark street in a jacket, in a ski mask, and decides that they should call the police because I appear to be suspicious. And the police haven't figured out or they have no interest in reckoning with my humanity. And so I become this thing that can be legitimately killed. The cover of The New Yorker is the story of what happens when Someone decides black people can be legitimately killed. And it's powerful and it's heartbreaking because some of those images are images that are born straight out of my grandparents' era. And to be clear, that means my grandfather who was born in 1911 and that I am having similar experiences and that's a tremendous failure so, yeah so keep going for me on consciousness and civil rights and black lives matter as movements how how have we come from that trace that history and what what is hap what is your sense of what's happening now i think we're trying to to raise consciousness I don't always agree with how we're doing that, but I, I recognize that that's the goal. For most of us anyway, that's the goal, to raise consciousness. Um, I don't think that you can necessarily, I can't anyway, survive 
too many more examples of death as spectacle. Like how many more of these breaking videos do folks need to see for their consciousness to shift? I don't need to see not, not one more. Uh, I think there's something problematic, even if the goal is right, even if the goal is lofty, even if the intentions are pure, there's something problematic about death on a loop. Because the brain has to normalize that after a while. And I don't want that to be normalized. So, so sometimes I think we miss the mark with the best of all possible intentions. I can right now log on to YouTube and, and, and look at Eric Garner dying. I can watch John Crawford being shot in a Walmart aisle. I can watch Tamir Rice at 12 years old die on a park bench. I, there's something problematic about asking us to have a steady diet of those bodies. That cannot be the way, the only way, the go-to method to, to, uh, to awaken consciousness. That cannot be the way. Because the thing about it is I've seen enough now to know that in other instances, you don't need that. You don't actually need the breaking video. I remember... Years ago, when newscasters, these, these white newscasters were filming their program, their morning program, and they were shot on camera by a disgruntled employee. And I heard news outlet after news outlet say, we're not going to show the video in honor of their families, and we don't wish to create any more pain for them. And I thought, oh, yeah, because, yeah, that's you acknowledging that what happened was horrific and that we don't need to see someone being blown apart to grieve for them. But you don't offer my community that. So I know you're capable of it. You just haven't demonstrated it for me, for mine. We have to begin to practice something differently. So yes, black lives matter. And we want to awaken people to the consciousness of that. But I shouldn't have to show you a dead body on the ground for you to come around to that way of thinking. The movement has to be about the affirmation of our existence, not our death played on a loop. I don't know if I answered the question or not, but. I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to come back to this uh, idea of your artwork and your poetry. And there's this, this saying that we know as poets of art for art's sake. And I wondered if you thought this has ever been a credible or honest statement given the reality of human suffering. How do you understand the role of your art in the midst of the harsh American realities that you've been describing? Especially, can you tell us about your book, Anarcha Speaks? Art for art's sake. I'm sure there are people who, who have lives where that is true. And that's an amazing thing. I have never been able to create from so simple a place. Um, art for me has to be about provocation and um, consciousness raising 
and and in some cases just literally eulogizing. You didn't have the authorship or the agency in your life. I will I will insist on your remembrance in death. Um, so many things that I write are el elegiac because I believe these folks deserve space in the room. Uh, Anarka is is a huge example of that for me. You know, um, young woman born into chattel slavery, um, had a baby by the man who owned her. The baby died. The labor and delivery was catastrophic. And she was injured, uh, suffered vesicovaginal and rectovaginal tears. And at the time, there really was no medicinal practice that knew how to stitch a woman back together uh, as a result of labor and delivery trauma. A lot of times enslaved women who suffered labor and delivery trauma would then be sold off, their value reduced, right? And they'd be sold off to chain gangs and things like that to be sex slaves. And this girl had this stillborn boy. And the man who owned her called the doctor in to see if she could be repaired. He was trying to fix his property. And Marion Sims came in there full of ambition, trying to make a name for himself, and saw an opportunity in this broken black girl. If I can repair her, at least try to understand how women's bodies work, I can create a brand from this and maybe get rich. And he experimented on her, which is really to say he tortured her. More than 34 operations, no anesthesia. He gave her opium once. Trying to understand a woman's complicated body. And he is regarded as the father of modern day gynecology. And everything he invented and learned, he learned by torturing a black girl. And I just think, ain't that the story? of this place, that she would be relegated to cliff notes, that she would be relegated to the margins, a footnote, and that he would have statues erected in his image and likeness. And so I write to upset that. I write to make Anarcha the biggest thing in the room and to make Marion Sims small so we can see him for what he is, a psychopathic opportunist, a man who brutalized women, seeking his own name on buildings. Yeah. Would you read a poem or two that show us that? Um, okay. This is when Anarcha is told that she's gonna have a baby. Don't wanna hear it, but Betsy say 
When you don't find no blood between your legs, you expecting. And I'm asking what I'm supposed to be waiting on. And she say, a baby. And my heart give out because I don't mean to be nobody's mammy on account of being cursed and unspecial. Who want a mama with all them demons around her neck? But Betsy say, get ready, girl, get ready. And I share myself with the kind of sadness that don't belong to nothing on this earth. What Massa did to me, I do not say. I just remember the hooch on his breath, on my face, them hands, round my throat, up my skirt, the stink of him on everything, pinned down and moaning into myself. Couldn't even unhitch a scream because his face too close to my face. His whiskers chafed my cheek, splintered my back. The woodshed was supposed to keep all this to itself. So no, I don't recall what Massa did. But when he left, seemed like he stayed. Like I kept some of it, like, like I ain't have no other way. And now Betsy say, I expecting. How you translate a bludgeoning to a birth? You tell me how I'm supposed to do that. A baby from the mud pile, a baby? Just one more thing. I don't know how to carry. Uh, you want another one or are you good? <laughs> <laughs> I'll always have you read another poem. Okay. I said, as you're finding it, um, we got to celebrate this book. Um, and I got to hear mm -hmm. Dominique read several of these almost through the whole narrative arc. Mm -hmm. And it was a hauntingly beautiful night with about 50 of us in the room. That was, uh, and everyone, I was so pleased that everyone left and mm -hmm. the quiet silence of it. It was a wonderful night. Me too. Um, when I get there, so many slave narratives that we have that were preserved, there was such a deep, longing for the other side for enslaved folk they couldn't wait to shed their bodies to just see what heaven may or may not have for them you know so they thought about it constantly they were constantly thinking about what what happens when you get to heaven because what I know for sure is you know there won't be anybody brutalizing me anymore there won't be and so this is Anarcha's sort of imagining of that. When I get there, trouble gonna be out of sight. I mean something magic, something smiling and big with the kind of sorcery I glad to be undone by. Oh heaven, you must be sweet cause Massa can't find you. No sweet by and by for the lash man and all the nastiness he got. When I get there, I gonna sit right down and raise my knees, clap these hands, shout till the moon splits. Oh heaven, you got space for me. A spare room for a phantom. I've been hungry so long. Famine, my only song. I split by an ocean, I torn up by longing when I get there to that great big house. I mean to look God dead in the face, show him my scars, my vacant heart, this blood corsage, and ask him. <laughs>
Why? You once said to me in a conversation, healing is our responsibility. And it was uh, one of those things, one of those times, many times I have with you when I feel my smallness of that statement. I have to, I need to slow you down and have our conversation Mm -hmm. on. What did you mean by that? I mean that we show up here and there are things and folks who harm us. And I would posit that by and large, our wounds are not our fault. But our healing is our responsibility. You can elect to stay in that place where you bled the most. And you can elect to let it give you every reason not to get up again. And it would be legitimate. You can stay right there in your brokenness, in your tragedy, and let it undo you and undo you again. And make sure nobody has any lofty expectations of you because somebody hurt you. And now you're just in the business of bleeding or you can transcend that brokenness. And yet it's hard and it's unfair that that work belongs to you because the wound was not in your handwriting, but the healing always is. You insisting on yourself, your right to the world, your right to get up, your resurrection story is on you. It's on you. And I think we need to hear that because I think some of us have been conditioned to think that like, you know, the thing that hurt me or the thing that harmed me, whether it was interpersonal or historical or cultural or whatever it was, that thing that harmed me, I didn't deserve that. I didn't author that. I didn't seek that. So now I need somebody to come around here and fix it. And it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Your healing belongs to you. It is your responsibility to do that soul work, to climb out of the grave. It's your responsibility to do that. It's your responsibility to curate your own Lazarus story. And why wouldn't you, if the choice is to stay there bleeding or to transcend the grave, why wouldn't you just levitate? Why wouldn't you? In your wonderful book, uh, this collection of essays, This is Woman's Work, you write that because of patriarchal dominated society, a woman's work is to define herself. There is an urgency for women. When you have inherited a construct that names, describes, and practices an ideology that women are somehow less important, less necessary, then the work of defining yourself carries with it a kind of fury. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you describe for us what patriarchy adds to this conversation of white supremacy and also everything we've been talking about today? The, the, the patriarchal model is that men have power and agency and authorship and they control the weather. They control what's happening in every room. Um, and that everyone who isn't them is under them. 
and subject to their rule. Um, subject to being named or misnamed by them, appropriated or misappropriated by them. That's the model. Um, and when you inherit that model, you also inherit an idea about womanness that is filtered through the lens of patriarchy. So as a little girl, what that meant, meant for me was I was brutalized and normalized it as just a byproduct of what men and boys do and questioned what I had done to attract that. But I placed no ownership on the folk who harmed me because I inherited my ideas about womanness and girlishness were also coming from a patriarchal lens. And so in so many respects, it was like you had that coming or that's an inevitability or men can't help themselves or that's just what boys do or you shouldn't have even been over there or that, that was the model that I inherited too. I tell people I'm a recovering misogynist. I don't know women who aren't. Unless they were literally grown and raised in a matriarchal society. I don't know any woman who's not, who doesn't have misogynistic ideas or didn't have misogynistic ideas about women and girls because that's an inheritance within a patriarchal model. So to insist on yourself and your right to the world is to also explode the idea of womanness as it is interpreted by patriarchy. I'm not here to do things for men. I'm not here to be ogled or, you know, by men. I'm not here to be appropriated. I'm not a pack mule. I'm not a, a wet nurse. I'm not a bed wench. I'm, I'm none of those things. All of those things have been attached to my body or somebody who looks like me, but none of those things are me. So, that's what it means. You have to respond ferociously, insistently to carving out what it means to be a woman in the world when you exist in a patriarchal model. So many things have to be blown apart and reconstructed. So many things. You wrote in the same work, Revolution is the sound of your heart still beating. Mm -hmm. And as long as, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Revolution is the sound of your heart still beating. And as long as it is, you have work to do. Do it without apology. Do it bravely and nobly. Do it. Exist. Insist. And by all means, resist. resist. So how have you, not just as an artist, but as a human, taken the energies and life breath within you, despite adversity, limitations and constrictions of racism and patriarchy, made a life for yourself? I decided that I was unkillable, and so I am. I decided I was miraculous, and so I am. I decided that I deserve, and so I do. I decided to stop trying to be the version of the story that worked for everybody else. I decided to name myself 
and own my body and exalt in all of that, to offer it celebration, to go back and rescue the little girl I was before I knew how miraculous I was. I go back and rescue her in the writing all the time. I offer her the medicine she needed. Um, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not asking to take up space. I already take up space. I'm not asking for a seat at the table. I'm already at the table. I'm eating already. I don't apologize. I don't explain. I don't play small. I insist on myself everywhere I go, no matter what. And I pay attention to who's inspired as much as I pay attention to who is interrupted. That's it. That's it. Hmm. Well, I have a f just a few more questions for you. Okay. Um, I recently just saw an interview by Dr. Ibram Kendi, and he said, he said what he's been saying in a different way. He said, when I diagnose America as racist, when I say that America has stage four metastatic racism, I still believe that America can fight against the odds and heal itself. And I wondered where you see hope for healing and wholeness. I wonder if you do see hope. Sure I do. Or I couldn't get up. Sure I do. I, I, everything about how I, how I show up and the work that I do is about, you know, this. it's undergirded by the idea that I believe in y'all. I believe in us hard. And that I know for sure I have seen it and I am the evidence of a person's ability to radically transform. I, I have to believe in that. I have to model that. I have to introduce and invite people into that way of understanding. Because um, it's bleak and <laughs> dystopian and apocalyptic otherwise. Human beings certainly have demonstrated their ability to be awful, to be unlanguageably cruel to one another. That is a well-documented thing. But what is also true is we have had extraordinary, divine examples of folk who just by virtue of insisting on their right to the world, their right to be human, their right to be holy, their right to be caring, their right to love in spite of and because of, we've seen the world transform. We've seen communities transform. We've seen people change their minds change their ideas, shift in their understanding, integrate a new way of thinking about the world and the people in it. We've seen it. We need to amplify those moments, invite folks to their capacity to have those moments and to create those moments. Yeah, I believe in all of that. Again, racism is a construct. It's an awful inheritance. We all inherited it. When you unpack it, it's just like anything else. I had an auntie who gave me this 
awful sweater one time. And it was my inheritance. And bless her heart, right? Like, that was my inheritance. But I don't wear it. Bless her heart. I look at it, and I know she gave that to me. But I don't wear it. And this is what this is that. Racism is an awful inheritance. Look at it and go, I'm not going to wear that. I'm not going to wear that. That's not, that's not me. That does not look good on me. And we have the ability to do that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So tell us a little about what's happening in the sto tragic story of Elijah McClain. How are you involved? What actions are being taken? Um, I don't, I don't have a deep need to be seen around it at all. I, I'm, I'm supporting folks who are asking for support um, and trying to amplify the voices that that want to be amplified and and um and I'm grieving him. I'm I'm grieving this young man. I'm I'm grieving his last moments. Uh it sits like it's it's an anvil in my belly. Um I'm I'm devastated that he got off the planet apologizing to his murderers. I'm devastated that he was, even as he was being tortured, was trying to explain that he's just different. Um, that he's an introvert. I'm devastated that he got off the planet thinking that he might have, because of his difference, that he might have attracted what happened to him, because that's a lie. I hate that he died thinking that. I hate, I know a lot of people are inspired by, you know, like, oh, Elijah's beautiful spirit, even as they were, you know, choking him and in between gasps of breath and terror and him vomiting, he's telling them he loves them and that they're beautiful and phenomenal. And I know that there are people who are really inspired by that. I am not inspired by that. I am enraged by that. I am grief-stricken by that. Um, I know that moment where someone's hurting you and because of your lived experience, you think it's because of you. You think you did something to create that moment. And that lie is far more brutal than the actual act most of the time. But I didn't die. And Elijah did. And we can't get him back. And we needed him. We needed him. We needed the boy who walked in the rooms <laughs> and busted him wide open with his smile. We needed the boy who played violins for Stray Cats. We needed that boy and we don't have him. And his last moments were so cruel and unfair. And so I want things to be erected and, and created 
and offered up in this world that are emblematic of the light that he shone in every room. I want us to be inconvenienced with the fact of his absence. So that's where my work comes from. It's about that. You're going to remember him. You're going to remember him. And you're going to remember and have to reckon with the fact that he was necessary. And he was taken from us. And he shouldn't have been. That the only thing he did was be black and nearby. That should be terrifying and different. That should be terrifying to everybody, not just to black folks. That should be devastating to everyone. And I, I do think people are awakening to that. You know, I was out there. I, I saw folks genuinely grieving and they didn't look like me. But I saw them lamenting that boy. So really, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to honor Elijah. I'm trying to honor who he was in the world and who he was to all of us. And, and I want accountability for the fact that we don't have him anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't tell you how um, sacred is the word I would use to describe this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. Um, holy, rich in its energy and that's always uh, how I experience you. And I thank you so much thank for you. spending this afternoon with me. And I, I, I had a hunch you would say some of the, the last things you did and thought that we had to end with you um, reading Mothers of Murdered Sons for us. Okay. Let's see. Mothers of Murdered Sons is written for Mamie Till. It was Emmett Till's mother. Emmett Till died in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, in 1955, Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother. Trayvon, of course, died in Florida in 2012. And Leslie McFadden, Mike Brown's mother. Mike Brown died in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Women whose sons will be buried before them lose a lot of blood and delivery. Their water breaks torrentially. Their bones go soft as yolk. Each contraction is a snatching hand, a howl in a place you want to rub but can't reach a deliberate flood. The way a dam breaks and swallows a city, a woman's body is like that. It can announce a funeral better than a gunshot can. For the women whose children are murdered, labor is foreshadow. It tells about the bones and the breaking and the temporary nature of things. Mamie Till laid up Nine hours, trying to pull that boy through her quaking thighs, sharpened her teeth on the ice chips and whispered prayers that didn't belong to anybody's God just to get that boy here, and he was a fat thing, too. Came up grinning and full of himself, even then. Came up gasping for air. Came up from the thick heat of her body, smacking his lips. Always hungry, see? Always hungry. Took him a while to clean Emmett up. Took even longer for Mamie to stop spilling every bit of herself in that stark white room. Took a while, see? And some of that blood ain't ever washed up. Ain't that a metaphor for always? Now, Sabrina Fulton is a ritual. You know, she's stony, stoic. Her face doesn't move much. 
Like a closed door with too many keyholes, no keys, each new sorrow is a padlock welded shut, except her eyes keep stories even when she won't. Ever since her youngest boy got killed, you can't look her in the eyes. If you do, Sabrina's going to bewitch you with her suffering. That ain't how she wants it. That's just how it is. Still, something needs to be said about how Trayvon's head just about split Sabrina in two. Looked like somebody was thundering out from under her with a hatchet in his hands. When I tell you she bled, you better know she bled. And they couldn't get it to stop. Doctor came in bellowing like Sabrina had something to do with how she was coming apart. Women keep their own magic, but you better believe God or something like it is involved when a son is being born. How you think a woman goes in as one, but comes out as two. They say the last person to split himself like that was Jesus. Ain't that right? You've been to Sunday school. You know, father, son, Holy Ghost, three in one, one in three. I'm trying to say women have always been about the otherworldly, super terrestrial mathematics of becoming more than the themselves since before Eve. Sabrina almost had to have a transfusion, you know, because that boy tore her up. So much blood, it looked like she didn't keep any of it for herself. Nurses and doctors running, trying to stop that woman from flooding the room with the red paint graffiti of sons who gotta get here and can't figure out how to do it without tearing something up first. Ain't that a metaphor for always? Now, Leslie, she doesn't come from anything that bends easily or apologizes much. She comes from something old. Her people split wood, tap trees, pick cotton, tried it, you know. Tried getting to some place with plenty of work and public transportation and enough folk who would look you in the eye, even if it was to spit in it. You've been hungry long enough. That's all the holy you know to look for. Leslie wasn't one of those girls who grew up thinking she could cry to get what she needed. Fact is, she didn't even cry when her firstborn burst through her skin and into cosmic significance. And he was a big one like his daddy, I guess. Dark, thick boned, like something made to be hunted, skinned, like something to be left bleeding outside in the middle of a road. Caution tape all around, little kids yelling and old folks hollering, peace be still. And there Leslie was in the thick of it all, watching the boy she fought her own body for, the one who barely got out of high school, the one she alchemized from her simple womb, laid up, circusing the street with his blood, so much of it, like when he was born and the doctors had to cut Leslie to pull him through, how her blood got in in his eye, how it seemed like he never forgot the trauma of inheriting a body like the one he had, the boy whose blood started a riot, how we all ended up with it in our eyes. The prayers of mothers with murdered sons don't reach heaven anymore. And maybe they never did. Maybe God's a charlatan pitching pennies to the sound of black boys breaking the world with their bleeding. Maybe he's too busy with more righteous indignation. Maybe the melody ain't right. Maybe he's too busy to see. 
He's not the only one with a murdered son. What about these, God, huh? What about these?